There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 24 of the Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien. And today I'm going to start a little bit of a journey. Uh, a journey in podcast form, but a journey nonetheless. My family and I, hopefully you have heard this by now, or if you're listening, you may have caught wind of it. We are moving from Texas to Montana. Uh, why are we moving from Texas to Montana? Well, Montana is a beautiful place, a beautiful place to raise your children, a beautiful place to recreate, a beautiful place to hunt, a beautiful place to fish, and a place that I've always desired to spend my life. Even from when I was a little kid, I used to, my dad used to watch with us Lonesome Dove, the miniseries, when I was a kid. I must have watched it hundreds of times over my life. And those folks thought about Montana much the way I think about Montana this great frontier, this place to live your life and, and do the things you want to do. And, and those guys in Lonesome Dove, those cowboys, went from Texas to Montana. And so that's what I'm going to do. But before I leave Texas, I want to have conversations with people that are important to me during my time here, but also important to this place. Because this is a place where my son was born. This is a place where I was uh, privileged enough to work for a company called Yeti Coolers. This is a place where I was privileged enough to uh, grow and expand as a person and that uh, means more to me than, than this place will ever understand or I would probably ever understand so the next few podcasts will be in Texas and they will be with people that I think speak to my time here but also the state and its culture and its haunting way and so hopefully you enjoy uh, my victory lap <laughs> is not a good term. My final lap in Texas and get to explore some new people and places with me before we go. So without further ado, the first person on my list to talk to in this Texas final lap was Wyman Menzer. Wyman Menzer, if you don't know him, is an extraordinary human being. 
and he's extraordinary in many, many ways. His life and times are exceptional. He is a man uh, of great faith in the outdoors. He is a man of great creativity. He's a man that, that is exceptional in what he can build and, and his uh, photography and his hunting life. So what you're about to hear is Wyman Menzer, legendary Texas coyote hunter, state photographer, and a man of many skills. So you're about to hear this man, a man that is very special to me. Hopefully you learn about his life, and in doing so, learn a little bit about his connection to Texas and my connection to him. So without further ado, episode number 24, Wyman Menzer. Sir Ben, how are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. Oh, we're in Benjamin, Texas, are we not? Yes, sir. You lived here your entire the entire life. Yes, I was raised on a ranch about 11 miles out of Benjamin. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to tell your age, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've been Six, here a while. 67 so. years old. I'll go ahead and be honest. <laughs> okay. I didn't want to pressure you into anything at all. Uh, well, that's an impressive. That's an impressive feat, given. A lot of times today, you know, guys my age don't stick around their home place very, very often. Yeah. Um, you know, I really didn't think that I would once I, I got out of college. Yeah. Um, I was went to Texas Tech University, but I came back and circumstances were such that I that, uh, felt like this would be a good place to headquarter. Yeah. Headquarter. And it, it worked out. Yeah. In spades. Yeah. In spades. Well, I mean, might as well start at the very beginning. I mean, you grew up here uh, with a brother and a sister, right? Right. Um, right. You grew up on a ranch not far from here. Tell you, just tell me about growing up, and, the, and you call it the Big Empty. Well, we uh, the ranch that uh, that we uh, were reared on is a twenty seven thousand acre, which is not a big outfit in this part of the country, but it's it's decent size. Definitely good for a couple of boys to be raised on. My dad was a foreman there. And he was there for 30 years and, uh, raised up as a, as a cowboy and learned to, to, uh, work cattle and break horses and the whole deal. And, uh, but my main love was, uh, was, uh, was hunting yeah. and studying the natural history of various species. And I was always going and, and collecting bird eggs and inspecting birds that I'd shot with a BB gun and, and, uh, uh, keying them out. And it, 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 it lent to, to what I'm, I'm doing today for, for, for sure. Yeah. And, and it, we were talking about this at breakfast this morning at, you know, and even in over whiskey last night about growing up in that environment and, mm-hmm. and what that, how that shapes you and what that makes you and it, the grit that it gives you the, the drive right. to work hard. I mean, you were raised in a hard work and hard scramble in life. Right. right. In this country, you know, it, it's pressure. I mean, it's- it is. It's it's not an easy place to live. Um, uh, you know, we find a lot of old house places we found there on the ranch. Um, in the early 1900s, people really came in here in droves and, you know, um, farmed, you know, cut out a little piece of parcel of land and tried to farm it. And through time, 
the land pretty well um, weeded out to where it's now probably at its carrying capacity. Early on, it was uh, it was just you know overgrazed more or less, yeah. I guess you could say. And so even today, though, it's hard because you know it's just mostly big ranch country, and uh, ranching practices have changed. You don't need as many people working on ranches. And so the, the town of Benjamin itself used to be a population of like 600. Now it's like 258, but that's basically what it, what it should be. Yeah. And so my dad and mom were both raised in the depression years, raised hard. My dad was in a large family where they parceled out the kids to other families where they could have enough to eat. My mom lived in dugouts and tents during the depression. She has bad memories about it. Wow. But they were resilient people, and they taught my brother and I, especially my brother and I, my sister, not so much, but uh, taught us, you know, how to how to be independent and to appreciate doing things for yourself. Yeah. And I appreciate that very much. And it's and it's uh, it's been good good to me because so much of my life revolves around, you know, uh, uh, doing things your own way and trying to figure things out and uh, and to make it work, yeah. make do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the early part of your story is very much just, you know, the life most kids would dream about, right? I mean, roaming, roaming around this country on horseback. Roaming, roaming at will. Your parents uh, did not, uh, uh, you know, stay on you constantly. You know, where are you going? It was just like, watch for rattlesnakes. <laughs> that, that was the warning when yeah. we were kids. When you go outside, y'all watch for rattlesnakes. And if you got a half a mile from the house with your BB gun or your 22 and mother missed you, well, she'd start hollering. You could hear her a mile away. She had a shrill voice and you knew it was time to come back home, but they just didn't keep a, a rain, tight rain on you. You were allowed to go out and be yourself and explore and be creative and, and doing, uh, finding things to do. Yeah. And it yeah. was, it was, it was a good thing. Yeah. It was a good life. Well, I mean, you got a good power description. I mean, de- describe for people listening that have never been to this country course. This is north. You call it north central Texas, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, what this country looks like. I mean, it, the, the the land, the animals, yeah. just the feeling of being here. Well, uh, first off, weather-wise, it's, we have some fairly cool, cold winters, very hot summers. So it's it's kind of one extreme to the other. Mm-hmm. Um it uh, we have a thousands of acres what they call the the badlands the noco badlands knox county badlands mm-hmm. and uh it's it's just the old red beds uh, ancient red beds uh apparently old river beds because you'll find uh gravel layers of gravel in the edges of the cliffs with a lot of uh, of uh, mammoth bones I've actually had a paleontologist come out and I'd show them wow. these skeletons and they say, yes, that's mammal. That's, that's camel. That's uh, ancient horse bones. And then you have your, uh, your deep soil sites where there's a lot of mesquite. The, the badlands pretty well, um, is, uh, um, dominated by, by juniper. Mm-hmm. And then your, your deep soil sites are mesquite and tobosa grass, buffalo grass, we have white-tailed deer, a lot of wild, of uh, wild feral hogs, a lot of coyotes, and um, and quite a few bobcats. We don't have any foxes to speak of, 
Uh, they live more or less in the in town. <laughs> where they're where they're protected from coyotes because coyotes eat oh, okay. them like hot dogs. I thought you were gonna say they they hang out at the bars. Oh, uh, well, they the I, they hang out in people's garages, <laughs> up in the attics, because yep. if they get out of town, the coyotes eat them. Yeah, and because we have a, in the winter time, this is a central flyway, so we have a good uh, uh, a good population of uh, of snow geese and the and the Canadians come through. Yep. Not a lot of ducks uh, back in the sixties. You know, I've seen a transition in the uh, in the waterfowl, uh, the makeup of of the water, waterfowl population. In the '60s, it was just the opposite. We had a lot of cranes, sandhill cranes, that stayed here through the winter. Tremendous, almost unimaginable numbers of greenheads, canvasbacks, and a few uh, Canadian geese. And now it's just reversed. Yeah, we have a few cranes come in early. Along with your your uh, uh, teal and and, uh, and those little species, and then the cranes move on up to the panhandle. Yeah, they go west, huh? Right, and then the ducks. They just we just don't have the duck numbers we did in the '60s, and I don't understand why because we've got as much or more water. Yeah, but something uh, to do with the flyway north. Probably, it it may they, have they switched. They've switched their flyway yeah, their flight pattern. So. Yeah, I bet so. Well, I mean, that's a good description of this place and. I mean, it's, it's shaped you in a lot of ways. I mean, it has, um, you know, like I say, growing up on the ranch and, and being raised as a, as an independent person. And of course, when I went to Texas tech, I studied wildlife biology. Yep. And then whenever I left, instead of getting a job, I, uh, became a, a coyote hunter, <laughs> professional coyote hunter and living out on a pitchfork ranch in a half dugout. And there's where you really became independent because, you know, you'd go into town once a week to get groceries. And, uh, and basically you were your own man. I mean, there was, there was nobody to ask questions to nobody to talk to, to exchange ideas (laughs) with. It was just you and the land. Yeah. I want to go through that specific, specific, but I don't know if you've ever talked about other than the time you told me the first time you saw a hippie on the Texas (laughs) Tech campus, the first time you encountered a hippie (laughs) who was having a deep conversation with some fire ants with some, with some red ants some yep. harvest ants yeah, <laughs> so yeah. he was probably having a good talk with them it's life, apparently so their circumstance and his circumstance. exactly um but you went to texas tech and, and wildlife biology was the choice of trade right was that just because the intense connection you had to this place and the animals yes all those things that's what drove you to that and then yes and the study of that kind of reaffirmed Right. And I, and I knew that I knew there were no job opportunities. I was aware of that at the time. And, but I was determined to get a degree in wildlife biology while yeah. I, well, back then they called it wildlife management. And, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I could have been a cowboy heaven forbid. I did. I mean, I respect, I love cowboys. I love that life way. I still, um, uh, cross paths with them, work with them in some of my photo shoots. I can speak their language. Uh, it's just that I've smelled enough horse, flat, horse sweat in my life. Yeah. It's just that I really loved working with, with wild creatures. That, and I actually aspired at one time to be a paleontologist. Oh. And uh, found out that it took too much math. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, but I, I still have a great interest in paleontology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, so you graduate from college, you go through the, the process there, and you, decide pretty much immediately right to 
to come back, become a professional mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. coyote hunter. Mm-hmm. You lived in a, in a, it was it a dugout or it was a shack? an old half dugout. Uh, it was built in 1948 when the pitchfork bought that portion of the ranch from the matador. Yeah. And I actually, I actually knew, uh, the man who helped build it in 1948. And, and so, um, uh, it was, um, just a little one room shack with a fireplace in the end. And, uh, partially, you know, the windows up was out of the ground and the windows down was below ground. And it was, uh, in the middle of 168,000 ranch, a acre ranch. And of course I had surrounding ranches that I hunted on also. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had, uh, the bags, 50,000 acres and you had, uh, an old fellow named Hubert Young and he had 10,000 acres. And then you had the Springer was 40,000 and another 10,000 acre ranch. And that was before, uh, commercial hunting. I was the only guy out there. I never heard a rifle shot. I never saw another person hunting the years that I spent three winters that I spent actually five winters. I spent three winters living in the dugout and then two other winters hunting out there, still working out of Benjamin. I never saw anybody else hunting. Hmm. And it was, it was like you step back into the 18th, 1800s and 19th century. Yeah. You're living in a, you're living in a one room dugout. Yeah. Very much. That was very much akin to when it was built in the forties. Right. I've seen pictures. I mean, it is, it was literally a one room hole in the, Mm -hmm. in the side of the hill. Exactly. And you're, you get up every morning, you were running trap lines, weren't you too? Running traps. Mm -hmm. And just talk about the daily life. Cause I think we've talked a lot about this in this visit when we visited a bunch of times, but in this particular visit, a lot about what, how soft our life is right now. Yeah. You know, my, like how, how I'm trying to escape the softness of life by going out and hunting. Right. You came out of college and plunged into the (laughs) headlong headlong (laughs) into the hardest, hardest life imaginable. It it was, you know, of course I didn't, I didn't go into a dog pull sled or anything like that. I had my four wheel drive pickup. But every morning was, it was a ritual every, every day I took out when I, when I moved in, I took 5,000 rounds of 22 ammunition and a couple of hundred rounds of high powered rifle just to, to shoot my coyotes with my 22. I used to dispatch animals and traps in practice. Mm-hmm. And of course my, my food stuff. And then in the mornings I would get, get up before daylight, eat breakfast, fix my lunch, same lunch every day a summer sausage sandwich, canteen of water, and a peanut pa- peanut patty candy bar that I would not eat a piece of it until I caught an animal. When I caught a coyote, I would break a piece off to reward myself. <laughs> and all day, I went along the trap line like 50, 60 miles, and then when I got back to cabin in the evening, I skinned, stretched, and if I had enough time, I would practice shooting with my Winchester Model 9422. And uh, then I'd cut my firewood, draw my water for that night for either a bath, only took one bath a week, or washing dishes. And then I would finish dinner, wash the dishes, write in my journal, sit in front of the fire, and then go to bed. Mm-hmm. Every night, seven days a week, 30 days a month, all winter long. That's what, that was a life. And it was great. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. First winter was fabulous. 
second winter got a little tougher. <laughs> Third winter was real tough yeah. because I've, I've become a little bit more uh, social and living down there, you were pretty restricted. I, was I mean, say, you're a young man at this point. Right. You know, I needed to see somebody. Yeah. And so uh, every once in a while, a cowboy would come by and I'd say hi to him, be able to talk to him. But other than that, I'd go a, a day or two days without saying anything. And that, that kind of got to you after a while. Yeah, I imagine it would. So you're killing coyotes, bobcats. You're you're earning money, right? From from the pelts, right? So you were how many coyotes uh, a month? How many coyotes a season? And how many bobcats? What, well, how much money would you make? Well, you know, we didn't. Our coyotes here in Texas weren't worth that much. You were know, fifteen bucks a piece. But I needed to make four. I needed to catch four animal units a day. And I considered an animal unit a coyote. Bobcat was worth two animal units, a fox three quarters of a unit. And uh, with four animal units a day, I could make my pickup payment, my college loan payment, and buy groceries and have some spending money. And so my goal was to get four animal units a day. And yeah. I did. A lot of people nowadays say, oh, I'm a professional hunter. That is what you were. It was professionally that was, that hunting was, and trapping. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, what did. I had so many questions about that time in your life, but one of them I always thought is like, what are your main takeaways? Cause well, I tell you, you know, uh, you know, with age, you, you know, you, you become mellowed out you don't hunt as much, but I can look back on those years and realize that hunting at that level, it is people can't fathom being that involved in hunting today. Uh, back in the 1800s yeah but you become so you become so involved in the natural history of the species that you were after you ever i mean every track you know you studied the tracks you studied the what you thought was the time of day or night the tracks were made you watched weather patterns uh you anticipated animal movements in accordance to weather patterns uh, you learn that coyotes travel in certain areas in the daytime versus nighttime. And your average person today who goes out and quote hunts has no idea of that level of understanding of the natural history of animals that you have to, that you have to have in order to be a professional hunter. Yeah. And it, and it's, I wouldn't trade for those years. Yeah. Well, not only did, or you're a professional hunter, but you were, as a biologist, right. logging your kills, taking logging, blood samples. Exactly. Exactly. Know. I took all, I was very much a note taker and, and I would document each animal, uh, you know, the distance that I shot it or the trap I caught it in, what foot I caught it on. And, um, and I still have all those, that information today. Yeah from all all the way back how many all the way back. how many coyotes in the in the journals now uh i've i've with a rifle i've shot 1760 with the rifle alone and that's not counting traps it was another 1500 or so with traps yeah uh 877 bobcats and so you, you know and, and it's <laughs> not and it's not something that i'm necessarily proud of it's just that was a way of life yeah yeah. You know, and, and as a, like I say, as an older person, I don't hunt like I used to, uh, I have a softer heart than I used to have. Well, that's always the, the most interesting storyline about, you know, when I think about your life, which is this tremendous tapestry of, you know, 
something that's to be admired really and in all its stages but when you're when you're back there and you're killing these coyotes mm-hmm. for a living you know a lot of people nowadays might say well what a terrible thing you're going out there and just taking life in wholesale to right. make money and you're selling furs and you know in the modern day that might be looked at as as um, a negative to the landscape but Describe in that place and time, you know, how you thought about the animal, your respect for it. I mean, I know just from knowing you that right. that's the case. I did have, I, and I still do. I mean, I'll always have great respect for the coyote. I think they're a very intelligent, uh, uh, an animal that, uh, they can make those, make the changes yeah. with man, whereas the wolf could not. And they were pretty well exterminated uh, from Texas, but the coyote is, uh, um, uh, very adaptive. Yeah and very sharp and so uh early on the one of the reasons that i started taking notes was that i just wanted to learn more about them and so the earliest notes came whenever i was in uh like a sophomore tech and i wanted to become a better coyote hunter and so i thought well i'm going to have to understand the feeding habits of coyotes so i conducted a full year of research on my own by collecting stomach samples, fecal samples, and uh, uh, documenting the areas, um, separating them by vegetation, uh, topographical, ge- ge- uh, geological features. And then I received a grant to study another year. And so, uh, you know, all of this, this note-taking has been a very positive thing because mm. to this day I'll sit down, I'll get bored someday and just sit down with all those notes and go through them just to remember. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'll see things that I've forgotten, you know, in, in 30 years since I've seen them. And it's, uh, it just continues to be a learning process. Yeah. Even after all these years. Yeah. I mean, in, when you were a professional hunter back in those days, you're living in a dugout. Do you remember having, do you have any, you sit here now and your grandfather and time has passed. Do you look back and have any remorse for, for the animals you killed? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. I, I can recall some instances, especially one, one day that, that touched my heart and to this day. And that has been 44 years ago to this day, still tugs at my heart. And, um, and it was the coyote I'd caught in a trap, and uh, and I don't know that that coyote. He, he just he just sat there and just and just looked at me. Didn't try to fight, and then whenever I I, I dispatched it, there there was there was a look of helplessness that it knew it was going down, and. And I sat down in my pickup and cried mm. after all those, all those animals I'd taken that particular animal made me sit down in my pickup and cry. And to this day, I still think about it and it tugs at my heart. And another one in particular is one of the first really neat shot photographs I'd taken because at that time I was working on my photography. I remember I caught him in the J2 pasture on the pitchfork, real rough country, just savagely rough country. And it was at the dead end of an old bulldozer road. And I caught this big male coyote. And I mean, he stood up and fought me like a lion. I mean, I, I got out of the pickup and he was snarling. He was caught up in a number four new house trap. No way of getting out. 
And I had the greatest respect for that animal. And I pulled the camera out and took a photograph of him. And I mean, he's got his teeth bared and he's just saying, you know, I know this is it, bring it on. And, and I still think of that, that animal and that, that, that bravery that he showed in the face of death, that picture was selected by Texas monthly as one of their greatest pictures of 25 years that they'd oh, published wow. that magazine. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that that's a great, I'm, I find myself, I'm not, I got a lot of years to live, hopefully a lot of years to hunt, but I find myself examining those, those, that relationship with the animals that you kill. Right. I mean, because you say you kill thousands, right? Upon thousands of these animals, but it doesn't mean that you don't have an emotional connection to them, right? Uh, today and and then, like I said, it was just your way of life. It was it's a way of you, life. It's what you did. It was a way of life, and and uh, and I also I was enjoying just being a part of the land. Yeah, you know, every day the sun sets, the sun rises, the weather changes, all of those things still have an impact on me today. I still refer back to those years and, and what I learned in, in animal movements, animal patterns. Like I can say, like, for instance, a couple of days ago, I saw a rattlesnake crawling. Anytime that I start seeing an immediate, uh, an increase in animal movement, when I'm walking in the mornings, you'll start seeing various creatures tracks suddenly appear. And I'll tell Celinda, my wife, we got weather coming. And I learned that from those years as a professional hunter because I studied, I lived and breathed those habits and those weather changes and how they affected animals' behavior. And, uh, and it just, and it still serves me today. Yeah. That's amazing. You almost become an animal yourself when you're out there. Sort of. Yeah. Not, not speaking for some days and I'm yep. sure it can feel like that. You're, yeah. getting, you're getting your own head. Yeah. You're getting your own head big time. You better like yourself. That's <laughs> all I can say. You better like to hear you better from like, yourself. Yeah, you better enjoy, just, you know, appreciate you being you because you're going to learn yourself. <laughs> did you, I mean, when you were doing that, did you think, hey, look, 40 years from now, I'm going to look back and these are going to be the golden years. Do you think, man, this is, I'm a crazy son of a bitch for, for doing this. I mean, was there a self-realization at any point during those I re- No, I realized that the days would end. And, uh. And I remember drawing on the wall, and it's been covered up since then. It was the last few days of that first winter. That first winter was the golden winter. That was the best because I'd been seemingly all my life in school, as most guys that go to college realize, you go from the, well, in my days, first grade to college. Yep. And there's no break. And it's like I'd been going to school forever, and I was sick of it. And, man, going out and being on your own and, of course, immersing yourself in the land with a rifle. I always loved to hunt. Wasn't that big of a fisherman, but I loved to hunt. And uh, and I loved just big, wide-open country with, with lots of elbow room. And I realized something told me that first winter at the end that my days were limited. This freedom would someday end. This, this level of freedom. I, I mean, I'm free and happy today. I'm doing what I want to do. But back then, man, it was, it was really indescribable. Yeah. And I drew on the door, on the closet door, and that, I had a little tiny closet in the corner in that, that uh, dugout, half dugout. And I drew a coyote in a trap. And in the distance were these two prominent hills called Double Mountains. They've been, they've been uh, mentioned in, in, uh, 
uh, Renault McKenzie's books on his fight with the Indians Comanches in 1870s. Uh, they've been landmarked for probably 10,000 years, but I could see them in the distance from my trap line. And I drew those hills and I drew this coyote in a trap and drag marks leading up to where he'd caught, been caught up and couldn't uh, go any further. And I wrote beneath it, uh, something to the effect of, uh, to this end, let's see, what was it? Uh, I too, I too shall to realize this end, meaning that this grand life of freedom will someday be over. And, uh, it got painted over a few years ago and it just makes me sick. I'm thinking about going back out there and trying to redraw it. To redraw it, it on Yeah. <laughs> did you ever get a photo of it or just? I did not. No. I did not. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that. To, I, it was, to this end, I too shall pass. To this end, I too shall pass. And it was a coyote in a trap and knowing that the end was near and seeing that great land of those hills in the distance and knowing the freedom and it would be over. And that's the way I felt at the end of that first winter. And it was true. I've never, have never been able to feel that kind of magic again. I've had great life, wonderful life of, of traveling and seeing the land and going on ranches where nobody else hardly ever goes, but with a camera in hand, but there's always that restriction now that I didn't have back then. I was young, totally, completely healthy, lots of ammunition <laughs> and and more land that i knew what to do with yeah and i've never known that since and yeah. of course now with commercial hunting taking over that land doesn't exist anymore yeah it's gone yeah i can still go to that cabin and i'm welcome to the the rancher says hey go out there and do whatever you want to do you know you're part of this ranch as well you think you're part of the history but all that country's leased and so i go down there and i work on the cabin I'll pop open a beer, eat some deer sausage, sit down on the porch, and remember, and then I'll leave. Yeah. I mean, that, that isn't every person in some way chasing that sense of freedom? Like, not everybody knows exactly how they're going to get to it. Believe me, I whenever I give presentations and I talk about it, I, I have one presentation that I give quite often, and it's called The Evolution of a Texas Photographer. And, and I give that part of my life. And almost without fail, people come up to me, older people especially, and say, how I wish I would have taken the opportunity to do that. Because there's only a small window of time. If I give presentations, say, to a college class, I will, I will every time, 100% of the time, I will say, when you finish college, you have this small window of opportunity to do exactly what you want to do. And I said, when you let that window pass, it's over. You establish, you become that in that established line of life, you know, in that so-called rut, and it's hard to turn back. Mm. I said, so if you have any kind of a, a dream, you know, some heartfelt message that you want to go try out for a year, do it. Because it is sad to talk to those people who will, will visit with me and say, I had that opportunity and I didn't take it. Yeah. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. 
You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying, if I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. But I can go, if I pass tomorrow, I have no regrets. I did exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah, and how much of the rest of your life did that inform? Knowing what that freedom felt like, knowing right. what, what the land did for you and what those animals right. would provide to you, how much... You know, there's, right. I don't think there's any way you'd be where you are today without that. Exactly. I mean, it, it established the basis for what I do today. Without doubt. I just use a camera instead of a rifle. Well, I yeah. still hunt. You know, I have, uh, I, I, I love venison. Yeah. And I'll kill my three or four deer every winter. And, uh, uh, I called up last, uh, winter, I called up 175 coyotes, but 99% of them I shot with a camera. Yep. I still shoot a few just to maintain my log, my data and enter in my log book so I can keep continuity. But most of the time I hunt with camera. Yeah. And that's, you look back, like you're in those days and you have this, I mean, I think everybody, even me sitting here now, I'm thinking about how beautiful of a time that must've been. And everybody that listens to this can, can think about what their ultimate freedom looks like and what, what the thing is that would would evoke those feelings in them because i think it sounds to me like you knew during it that it was special and life absolutely life defining but even even as you went on you look back and it became more important as time right went on. It, it is i i uh 
catch myself so often in times of uh, you know uncertainty. Uh, I I will just sit down and I remember those years. Yeah. Perspective. I mean, is that just what it gave you? Right. It gave me it gave me perspective and and it gives me solace today because because I revisit and and almost become you know go back to that time and just even if it's for an hour or so of, of sitting and reminiscing, I'm happy again. Yeah. And I feel that freedom and I can pick up that same model 94 Winchester 22 and I shoot <laughs> and it feels just like it did whenever I was just burning that 5,000 rounds practicing in 1974, 75, 76. You to burn out a lot of barrels shooting like that. I burned out three, two forty three barrels. In that in that rifle that I had at the time, I was too poor to own anything else but a two forty three. <laughs> that is that was not a good fur rifle. Yeah, I learned how to be a real good seamstress or a seamster. I could sew very well. <laughs> sew holes up. And so I I burnt, but I burned out three rifles in a two I burned out three b- barrels of a two forty three. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the moving on to the next portion of your life, I heard t- I heard tell from some people that you were a wild man sometime. <laughs> Well, you know, in that, in that actually, that actually sourced from those years of doing that type of thing. Of course, you know, I mean, I, I, I became a pilot and I would fly for ranchers looking for cattle and, and, you know, you'd fly much like a bush pilot, low, slow all the time. And, and I would do things in a plane and all this, all these things combined sort of there's guys today that, that I, that I won't see for months, but when they see me, they say, Hey, wild man, what's going on? And I, I, I go, well, I'm just living, you know? <laughs> well, in that Yeti film, there's some, some, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, my mama said, don't, don't be hanging out with that wild that, man. That was my, that was Mike Gibson. He said, my daddy didn't like me hanging out with him <laughs> because because I, even as a teenager, I pretty well danced to my own drummer. Yeah. And, um, and as, and his father was pretty established, you know, you know, in, in this is the way life should be A, B, C, D. And I wasn't following that. I was jumping from A to E and, and he, he didn't want his son going A to E. <laughs> and so it was all that, the steps. Yeah. So that time in your life, you were just doing random. You were still hunting, obviously. And when was it? This post, when you got out of of being a professional hunter trapper, moved right. out of the, the dugout. Right. Just describe that next portion of your life. Well, I, I, I was married in 1978 when I was just essentially 28 years old. I got married first time. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, this my Celinda will be my last one. I don't think Celinda will let you go. <laughs> She's not going to let me go, no. <laughs> I'll get beat up if I try to go anywhere, but, uh, yeah, it sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I continued, I continued hunting and trapping, but I was also working on, on my photography. I, I, in 1970, about 1976, I was thinking that I would probably like to do some editorial photography. And so, uh, I started submitting to magazines and, and got them kicked back and started realizing what I needed to do and the level of excellence that I needed to achieve in order to be considered a viable photographer and for people to, to be dependent on magazines. And so I finally broke in, in 1978 and the more I photographed, the less I hunted. 
And, uh, and there was a period in the 1990s that, uh, my log books were pretty thin because I was really, I had two, my two sons at the time and I was really pushing the envelope, you know, traveling a lot, a whole lot. I look back at, uh, at my uh, calendars and I, and I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I stood it because I was going all the time, book signings, you know, doing radio, TV interviews in San Antonio, Houston, Austin, you know, Amarillo, just all around. And, uh, and then traveling all over the state and shooting for the, for various book projects. And, um, and then, then I, then I began to realize I missed my hunting. And so now I try to balance it out a little bit, although photography does <laughs> take the heavier, heavier yeah. load. Yeah. I think we skipped over a story. I wanted to make sure we covered now you, you had a little plane crash one time. Yeah. I don't want to skip over that, part yeah. that story because it's a gem. Yeah, well, I was uh, I was looking for a cattle. Uh, my brother had leased some land, or actually he owned some land, and, and he had a couple of heifers missing. And so he asked me if, I'd, if I would uh, take a plane and go over and, and look, look for them. And I was flying low and slow with the brush and decided – Finally, that that I couldn't I couldn't get them located. They must have gotten out into another onto another ranch, and so I'd climbed out to about 150 feet, and I was banking and headed back to the airport, and my engine just died. Just just it was just like silence, and I just I remembered so vividly thinking this didn't happen. I cannot get this engine started. I mean, I'm too low. Besides that, you had to prop the plane off. Yeah. And so, uh, instantly I went into survival mode. I, my, my flight instructor was an old B 24 pilot from world war two. And he pounded into my head, airspeed, 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 airspeed equates to life. And so I nosed it over and I started looking for a place to land and I knew it was going to be bad, but, uh, but I can remember the still remember vividly the whistling of wind that sound of silence except for the wind and me frantically thinking, how can I get out of this alive? And I, to the right, uh, to the left was where I wanted to land into the wind, but there were two barbed wire fences. And I could tell by my rate of descent that I was going to take these two fences out in front of me was a wall of mesquites. And I didn't want to drive a mesquite tree through my, through my chest. And to the, to the right of me, downwind, which is where I didn't want to go because I'd be building airspeed, was a hilltop that had been freshly deep broke, what they call big oxed, which you have clods, you know, that weigh 50 pounds, 60 pounds. And I knew that that was going to be a rough run, but I chose that. And so uh, I banked it over very steep, built up my airspeed, did a 90-degree bank. And as I leveled out, I was about 10 feet above the ground. And my big plan, my big battle plan was to just pull the nose up as high as I could and belly flop in. But I was, I was really moving pretty quickly at ground speed with a tailwind. And all I remember was a bang. And the next thing I remember, I was hanging upside down, the plane did cartwheel. And, uh, and I could hear gas uh, spewing as it run onto the engine. And I thought, I got to get out of here. I'm going to burn up. So I grabbed my shoulder harness and clicked it loose, fell out against the, the roof of the plane, rolled out on the wing, and I took off running. plane didn't burn. But, uh, but that, was a, that was a very memorable experience. But as I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, I would suggest people 
who go outdoors and especially engage in dangerous things, read a book called Deep Survival. Yeah, you're telling me. Deep Survival. That book explains why I survived. And it was the preparation. The preparation that that old B-24 pilot taught me, who spent three years of his life in a German POW camp. But he pounded in my head, this is the way you survive in a plane. Whether you're hunting, whether you're mountain climbing, whether you're flying, whether you're skinning a deer, preparation and the ability to change at a moment's notice, not stick to the battle plan, not yeah. go, I got to go A, B, C, D. I can go from A to E in order to survive. And that's what kept me alive. Well, they said you're describing all these options. Well, I'm sure that wasn't 10 minutes you had to just no, float it was around. No, seconds. seconds. You're talking it about boom, boom, boom. You had to make that decision. Absolutely. And didn't you just walk out to the road, hitchhike, and go home? And- I walked out to the highway and hitchhiked, and a cowboy picked me up who knew me and said, uh, do you have a flat? And I said, no, I had a plane crash. <laughs> and he, I thought he, he nearly ran off the road. He looked at me and go, you okay? I said, yeah, I just need to go home. <laughs> I'll get back to that plane yeah, whenever. I'll get back to that plane one of these days. <laughs> I want to also talk about when you became a father, right? Yes. I mean, you had a, a marriage dissolve, which happens to many, many people. But, but becoming a father of your two boys, like when that, how old were you when that happened? How old were you when they were born? Uh, I was, uh, let's see, 83. I was uh, 30. 30. Uh, no, wait a minute. See, see, 83. Yeah, I was, um, 33. I was 33 when I had my first son and 34 my second. Yeah. Which is similar to my age and, and, and hopefully my wife thinks that's the child output she would like to have. She yeah. told me, she, she told me on the, before I came up, she said, what do you think about having four boys? <laughs> I said, well, we got one. Yeah. Let's go one at a time. Exactly. Exactly. Blessing that that was a that was the greatest blessing uh, of my life. Yeah, having those two boys. I I've told so many people that young people who and I was one of them who go. You know, I'm not going to have any children. You know, you know. I I think that I know what love is. You do not know, and you know, as you know, you do not know the definition of love until you hear that little child cry when he's born. That's when you know this is what love is all about. And I raised my boys like my parents raised me with a loose rein, taught them how to trap. Uh, uh, didn't really want them to go into cowboying so much. And they didn't, they did for a while. They didn't go to college. They didn't want to go to college. And I respected that. Um, I realize now that not everybody needs to go to college to be wildly successful because both my boys are very successful. Very much so. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just a work ethic. The one thing that I was able to teach them is a work ethic. Those boys started early, very early working. And uh, and I, I, when their mother uh, left, I told them that we were going to have to stick together. They had a job to do. I was going to be on the road, and we needed to be a team. And they rose to the occasion. Yeah. I mean, that was most of their lives. You know, you raised them by yourself. Uh, well, uh, it's, well, not most, uh, they were like, you know, 13 and, and 14, something like that. Okay. Whenever. Well, yeah. That yeah. 
That was a, a tough time. Uh, that was that was tough. That was that was tough. Um, of course, there was the stigma of the divorce. I didn't like that. Um, but I realized in the long run later that it was the best thing because, you know, nobody wants to get a divorce. Uh, that that's hard, especially with children. Um, I have I have um, I have apologized to my boys numerous times, wishing that they had not had to see what they saw, the arguments, you know, the, the, the strife, the stress. And their response was very mature. They said, dad, we understood y'all just weren't meant for each other. And I thank God that they look, they look at it like that and they realize that we weren't, but I am thankful too that she and I were married because I have my boys. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thankful for that. But but I can tell you that, uh, and I know this may sound corny, that if everybody could find a woman like my Celinda, <laughs> there would be no divorces. Hopefully she'll listen. And I and I and I did not I was not looking to find anyone. I was burned out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was been married twenty years and a lot of it was strife and stress. Uh, trying to build up my photography. We we didn't have a lot. It was very tough. Uh, but when I met her, I realized that I'd, that I'd met a jewel. Yeah. She is that. She is a jewel. The challenge of raising those boys in, in this country, I mean, both of them still live. I mean, Peyton lives right down the street. Here. Peyton lives down the street. Of course, Hunter is a horse trainer at, at, at uh, near Weatherford. Mm-hmm. At Peaster and uh, highly, highly successful, very yeah. successful young man. Um, world renowned in that. World renowned, he is. And so, you know, you raise them on a ranch. You raise them mm-hmm. much like you did. They were on horseback. They were hunting with dad. Mm-hmm. They were probably reloading bullets and working mm-hmm. lever action rifles. And and uh, it took right. I mean, we were talking about it at breakfast again this morning. Like you, you, the challenge of raising your kids in this my son and this environment and what I'll have to face right? with technology, with the changing culture, with uh, the liberal nature of a lot of our cities and, and people and right. things that, that are challenging um, based on the way that you grew up and your kids grew up. I mean, what uh, you look back at that and oh, I just kept thinking it, it took, I mean, you taught those boys a way to live. Right. They live life their way, much like you've lived yours your right. way. And it was the end. It's independence that I, that I taught them. Like for instance, a good, a good, uh, story here is, uh, when Pate was, uh, you know, maybe 17, 16. And he came in one day and said, uh, it was like February, early February, late January. And, uh, and he wanted to buy a pickup, an old used pickup. And I couldn't afford to buy the pickup for him. It just, just the way it was. I was struggling. And I said, uh, he said, dad, there's not any, there's not any day work going on. He said, I I need, I need this much money to to make a down payment with this pickup. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I can't help you, but there's a fur market is up a little and I'll show you how to trap. And I took him out and showed him where to set traps, how to, how to read sign on Bobcats. And in one month, he caught like 28 bobcats, enough to make a down payment on his pickup. And I said, now you're going to skin them too. 
And there's a couple of times he'd call and say, Hey dad, I'm busy. Can you scan my cat? I said, no, he'll be here waiting for you. <laughs> you got to do it yourself. Yeah. I've scanned enough. And it was teaching the, the boys responsibility and that, that they needed to work, you know, and it was, it was nothing wrong with working hard. It was nothing wrong with sacrificing and, and taking that extra time when you got in, although you retired, you still had a job to do before you turned in for the night. And it was a positive thing all the way, all the way around. It was good for them in the long haul as, as men today and who they are and, yeah. and their, their productivity and the respect that they command with other people. Yeah. Everybody knows them and, and respects them. I mean, we've all got an enemy here and there, but <laughs> by true. and large. Yeah. I found that traveling around that the unique nature of somebody that's raised in that environment. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had another, I had another guy named Fred Eichler on the podcast. Um, some months ago, I was out turkey hunting his place in Colorado. He lives on a ranch. His kids grow up much like yours did. And his son, I think is probably 13 or 14, maybe a little younger than that even. Um, but the young man walks right up to you, shakes your hand, looks you square dead nuts in the eye. Right. And says, it was, it's a pleasure to meet you. And sure. He means it. Right. He's 11 years old. Right. And that struck me as, you know, his father and his parents, but his environment mm-hmm. is that you get up in the morning, chores, chickens, goats, run, horseback. Right. This, that. Right. And and that always struck me. And, as, you know, and Pate today, of course, Hunter and, and Alicia don't have children yet, but Pate has three and two of the, the, the daughter and the son uh, 11 and 10, I believe they have their chores every day. It's clean out the horse stalls, feed the dogs, water the dogs, water the horses every day. They have these chores. And I was asking, uh, uh, Tristan, the, the little boy the other day when I took him out hunting, uh, I asked him if, uh, he liked his chores, doing his chores. He said, Oh, not really. And I said, but those chores are good for you. They're teaching you a lesson. Everybody, I said, when, when Pappy, that's me and uncle Rick, that's my brother. When we were little in your age, we had our chores. We gathered eggs. We cleaned out the barn. We cleaned out the chicken pen and it was good for us. And this is good for you. And, and it's, and it's unfortunate that more parents don't expect that out of their children. They try to keep, try to insulate their children from that. And that's wrong. I'm sorry. That's wrong. Yeah, I mean, it shows in the way, you know, I hate to make it up. It's not, because there's definitely parents that live in urban environments that do things yeah. like that. And that's, that's, I don't want to make it sound like that, but I just, I've, I've found in traveling around and hunting and meeting young folks that live in small town environments, that live in places mm-hmm. where work is required. You couldn't just, like, you you know, you wake up on, on a ranch and sleep in mm-hmm. and for a couple of days just watch TV and take the weekend off. Next thing you know. <laughs> yeah things aren't going life's not going the way you exactly. want exactly and so I, i'm not sure if it's connected to that or just connected to the culture in these in, in small towns and the connection of people in the land and all that i'm not sure i, mean, I wonder what your opinion on that is because it's it, it just has always struck me that the direct nature of of children raised in that in that environment and then meeting sometimes meeting kids that are raised with ipads and mm-hmm. um raised with ipads and sleeping in in the summertime you know yeah it's when you're when you're i think in in the environment that uh that defines this part of the country you know a ranching culture 
you know, kids are raised knowing that they have to work. And I know, you know, learning, you know, being a, a, a computer individual, you know, uh, everybody has to be somebody. Yeah. And you got to have that kind of a person. But two, it would not hurt those kids to go and get a job sacking groceries and knowing they have to be there at 7.30 to clock in and they have to work until this period of time. Then they can go and study their computers and, you know, and their whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and be that, you yeah. know, and yeah. pursue the job career that they want. But there's nothing wrong with learning to be responsible as a young person. You know, just talking about the handshake. My dad taught my brother, and I remember it vividly. You shake hands with a man, you look him in the face, and you squeeze his fist. And old daddy, born 1918, uh, sadly, tragically, we lost him when he was 65 years old. But, man, he'd grab us by the hand. He'd say, now you look at me and you shake my hand, you squeeze it. I taught my boys the same way. And to this, I mean, and he is teaching their his children to do the same thing. And that's that's good. And 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 Pate's son, even though Pate is a is a man of the land, like I was raised and my brother was raised, and and Hunter, he's more he's he's he dips in and out. He lives close to Dallas and you know he can deal with both. But Pate is, you know, he trains horses but as a hunting service, he trains dogs. And and he's more of your of your from the you know man of the land dude. man of the land. But his son wants to be like a marine biologist. Brilliant young man, uh, uh, into into to making model airplanes and studying aerodynamics. It takes my college books that I in parasitology and comparative anatomy, and those are the books he li- likes to read. <laughs> At 11 years of age. And I stressed to him, if this is what you want to do, do it. But do your chores. Do your chores because you will take take those values, that work ethic, into whatever field that you choose, whether it's computer science, whether it's marine biology, whether it's being a math teacher, or whether it's being a pilot, you're going to take those work ethics and, and apply it. Yeah, I mean, it's discipline, right? Discipline. I mean, that seems to be, you know, every once in a while I'll wake up in the morning and think, man, you know, I could sleep in. Uh-huh. Man, that kid was up all night or I was up doing this or I worked work late, I'll sleep in. Then I think about discipline. Like if you, if you do things when you'd rather not do them, that's the exactly. definition of success at that's, some that's level. That's it. That's right? it. And, I, and, I, and when I give this uh, presentation of uh, evolution of a photographer, I talk about being raised on a ranch, being required to do a job, and how it could have been so easy for me once I got out of college and moved out there to that to that dugout. I could have slept in. I could have went, man, it's cold outside, and as fire is going, and it's so comfortable. But no, I knew that I had to get up, and I had 50 or 60 miles of rough country to, to, to cover, I knew that I needed to have four animal units a day because I had 
a college loan payment to go. I had pickup payments. I had groceries to buy, you know, and I needed a little extra, you know, folding cash. Yeah. And, and, uh, but it was, it was what I learned when I was a young kid. Yeah. It strikes me as ranch. how many days in your life have you worked for someone else? <laughs> I've never, I've <laughs> never had a steady job. Yeah. It's always been a part time. That's true. I worked for the forest department once, uh, from seven and, from uh, September 1st to November 1st in 1975. (laughs) It's a long tenure. A long tenure in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and in Las Vegas, New Mexico. And came back and we hit the trap line again. And then I worked as a crop adjuster during the summer. Uh, Whenever I was in uh, college, I worked in the summertime for the highway department. And in the afternoons after I got off work, I welded to make extra money so I wouldn't have to float alone. I didn't get to have to, have to float alone for college until I was to my last semester and as a senior, but, but I would hold down two jobs in the summer. And so I could, so I could, uh, could study and, and go to school and not yeah. have to work in the wintertime. Yeah. And now I'd work on weekends. I'd come home and work. And when the furs uh, got up in 73, I came home and hunted on weekends cause I could make more trapping and hunting coyotes than working cattle. <laughs> See, that, that gets me now because, you know, you, people work in these corporations, right? I mean, you get to be working for somebody else. They uh-huh. don't know the freedom and the, the, right. the discipline it takes to be like, I can't. You know, I got to be at work at 8 o'clock and my boss is happy. Well, yeah. you get up in the morning at 7 o'clock and start working. Your boss is yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you know, I don't think you've and really you know, ever known anything else. And you and you have you have great years and you have terrible years. Yeah. That's just, that's just working for yourself. Uh, you know, the great years are wonderful, the terrible years, you know, they're hungry. Yeah. And, you know, you have to do without. Um, but yeah. That's and, 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 and you, if some people think, some people think, well, you're past that. Well, you're not. You never get past that. Uh, there, it's just like a coyote. I, I compare my life a lot to the life of a coyote. You know, the seasons come. And then in September, you know, I'm eating, I'm eating good on cedar berries. January comes and, and I'm eating the last of the cedar berries and things are getting tough and things don't get good till the low berry crop comes on in April and I'm eating good. And then I go to grasshoppers, mesquite <laughs> beans and, and cactus apples. You know, there are hard times and there's yeah. good times. Yeah. And so, uh, you just, you just learn to, to, to deal with it. Yeah. Well, let's say that your life's not defined by either one of those things. Right. Your life's right. defined by your discipline throughout discipline the Discipline and, and the happiness with what you're doing. Yeah. If you're satisfied and you're go, you go home at night and go to bed and you feel good about the day, you've done well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things you've been most successful at is photography, right? You talked right. about it a little bit. So right. you decided after college and after your time as a, as a hunter, professionally so, that you wanted to start dabbling around with a camera and figuring right. it out. And this is in the 70s or 80s? 70s, whenever I started uh, aspiring. And then it was like 1978 is when I first got published in uh, I remember, yeah. bar, both in Parks and Wildlife and National Wildlife about the same month. It might have been a month apart. And of course, once, yeah, as you well know, once you get published, it's like, I love this. You know, I really want to do more of this. And then in 1981, uh, bro, actually 1980, I broke in the field and stream. 81 is, was that, that, that transitional year. When I had uh, three covers, three national covers in one month, and I realized then that that I, I stood a chance. 
but I was still holding down another job in the summertime, photographing in the winter. And I remember vividly in 1985, I was driving a diesel truck in the summer for a friend of mine. And I received a letter from Lionel Atwell at Sports Field. And he said, you've been chosen as one of five uh, America's like new photographers, um, kind of the photography of the future, photographer of the future. And that we want to, uh, we want to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, write a story, you know, devote a magazine issue to you guys. And I realized then, you know what? I may have something going on here. And he wrote that piece. I still have it today. The new breed. They call it the new breed. And, um, and then, um, published my first book in 93 Roadrunners, which was an immediate success. Uh, the images were published all over the world. I uh, did a 10 page spread for a Smithsonian magazine, uh, did a big spread for a, a Korea geo German magazine, French magazines. And then I received a, um, an award for that magazine. I forgot what it was out of San Antonio. And then things started popping, you know, things started rolling. I got, uh, 1987, uh, I was, uh, I voted as, a uh, out, uh, what was it? Uh, outstanding alum at tech. I was not a great student. <laughs> I'll admit that. And I questioned why I was given that. And they said, it's not what you did when you were in school. It's what you accomplished when you were out of school. Yeah. And so then in 95, I got the distinguished alum at tech, uh, 97, uh, the state photographer of Texas from George W. Bush, the governor then yeah. 75th of the legislature. And then things just started going Re- most recently in uh, February of, uh, 2018, uh, field and stream name is one of 10 American outdoor legends because of my, my predator hunting. I, uh, also in April received the, um, living legacy award from, uh, the, the, um, it's a foundation out of, uh, Corpus Christi. It's a big deal. I didn't know it was such a big deal until I went and it was like, this is big. There's only three people before me have received wow. it. and all of them artists. And it, it, what it is, it's art inspiring others to be interested in conservation the art that you produce. Yeah. And that was the reason the other three guys. Well, I mean, you take that all back, all the things that you've achieved in, in the, you know, later years, but those first covers and all that stuff. Yeah. And prior to that was just a stack of rejection letters. Oh yeah. And I still have them. I still have them read them. Yeah. I still read them. Yeah. And I don't, I don't submit that much anymore. It's mostly I do books. Sometime a magazine will call and they'll need images and I'll, I'll publish a story or something here and there. And I like, I enjoy writing, especially about coyote, my years as coyote hunting. I enjoy doing that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, um, but I still have those rejections. In fact, I, I, I read one to, to the guy who gave it to me in 1978, 1977, Bill Rees at Parks Wildlife. And he said, you actually kept that letter. And I said, Bill, I've got them all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, did you think about those rejections, and then it'd be interesting to hear because I know you talk about it in, in your one of your presentations about you never knew there was a state photographer of Texas, but right. you just worked and you worked and you worked That's, and you worked, and then all of a sudden somebody said, 
you are that. And you're like, that's, well, that's nice. That's another lesson that I try to, to instill in people whenever I give a presentation is that if you love what you do, if you work from the heart, if it, if you, if it comes from the soul, then the good things will happen. Uh, but don't, don't set in the beginning. Don't say, well, I want to be this. I want to be that. Just work and love what you do. Yeah. And if it was meant to be, those, those other things will come. Yeah. Those those, accolades, whatever is out there, they will, they will come about. Well, like you said, there's certainly struggles in your career as a photographer. Constantly. You know, where you have two kids and you try to make ends meet. Right. You got a stack of rejection letters and you, you know. Right. What do you do? Do you quit? Do you go get a nine to five? And sometimes you'd think about it. You go, you know, there must be an easier way. And then you think, geez, I don't want to live like that. I want to, I want to continue being free, being able to roam over this old hard ass country here in the, in the rolling plains of Texas called the big empty and, and mix with the cowboys go out here on these big canyons early in the morning and watch the fog rise from the canyon floor. I want to see that. I want to be able to see that all the time. And so I'm willing to sacrifice and able to do that, to be able to do that. And to work hard for it. Yes. So your photography, it's an art, right? I mean, you're, you're an artist. Describe what that, that art means to you and kind of how you develop your style and your functionality of the, uh, when I was trapping, when I was living out there on the pitchfork, I was always fascinated by the light playing on those cliffs. And in one of my, one of my journal, uh, entries at the very end of that first year, I wrote about the way the light played on the cliffs and how I would watch it disappear. And I felt like that was much like the life that I was living. That, that beautiful light, that beautiful life was fading at least the feeling that I had for that year. But, but still I I would take, and I still have those photographs of those sunsets and sunrises. Of course, then composition is not good. You know, I all have was a 50 millimeter lens and an old Canon tail shooting Kodachrome 25 and 64. But, uh, but the light was really what, um, played a huge role in, in the style of my photography. And I learned that, and also from the hunting, because I would shoot my photographs much like I would when I was hunting from a low, you know, ground level, you know, shooting kind of eye level at the, at the animal. And so I remember calling Gary Gretter at Sports Field and was asking him before I became published a lot about my imagery. And he said, you've got a style. And he said, I like it. He said, your eye for light and color and the angle that you shoot from. And I realized at that point that I had established a style. And to this day, that's, I've been at this over 40 years. People will say, I know your images the minute I see them because of the light you use and the angle that you shoot from. And that's, I mean, and again, you just had a passion about something. You worked right. at it every day. And eventually you had, you had developed something out of thin air right over just hammering on a rock and eventually you had a statue and there wasn't you know at the time in the late 70s nobody around here was being published at all i mean the closest guy was san antonio and then the next guy was uh in alice texas uh, jerry smith hell of a photographer and um and so uh the rest of the people were 
what New Jersey all around. Yeah. You know, you I forgot their names now. It's been so long ago. Bill McRae. Yeah, those yeah. guys. Yeah, super guy, super photographer. Bill's still around, I think. I hope so because yeah, he so. I, he was a nice fella. But you had Leonard Larue. You know, those are the and, and that God knows they live across the United States for me. And so you know, and at that time, send a roll of film often is a week or so before I get it back. And so, man, it was, it was basically, you know, Flint and steel, you know, starting a fire. Oh, I had to just, you know, write down my exposures. And then when I get the shots back, I'd look and I go, well, I screwed this one up. (laughs) Why? And I look over here and go, okay, now I know why. And, uh, and it was, it was a hard process. And, um, and in the 12 years I I taught at tech as an adjunct professor or an instructor, um, I would instill that in, in, in people in that I'm here, you have the opportunity to, to learn from someone who started from the ground up with Flint and steel mm. with a stick and string. And, and you better pay attention because there's not a lot of me around. And so for 12 years, I shared that with those kids Yeah, and, and I still have letters from them today. I kept those letters telling me how much they appreciate my sharing the knowledge that I learned from the hard knocks. Yeah. Because there, those folks, myself included, or anybody who wants to be a photographer, even a hunter, it'll be, be loath to know kind of what, how you hammered that skill out. Right. And right. The, the process you had to go through to get a refined image and then to mail it to somebody and sell it to them or whatever. Right. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination 
on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Um, they won't know that. There's no way for anybody to, unless they right. deliberately use that process, they won't right. know this perspective you gain from doing right. that. How how much every image, probably by the time you got an image published, you, you oh. had worked and refined and, yeah. and checked and rechecked and exactly. sent off. I talked to people. I'd call in New York. I mean, a, a guy here in Benjamin, Texas, you know, 258 people. Nobody knew where Benjamin was. They do now. You know, uh, but uh, for the most part, I mean, a lot of people don't. But still, I would call the guys in New York and just say, what do I need to do to make a difference? How can I be better? And luckily, they would talk to me. And uh, you had Victor Clossy at Field and Stream at the time. Good good guy, great guy. Talked to him, you know, and he would share ideas with me. And I would try. I would go out and I'd hammer it out and, and try to do better. Yeah, I mean, and teaching those kids, I mean, I'm sure you learned something about how to construct your own ideas, things that you've done. You know, like you said, you weren't sitting there thinking about, I got to have a style, got to have a style. But eventually, right. just with your the way you see things, the way the light plays, what it, you like to, to it do. It all started out with a rifle in hand. Yeah. That was the source. That was the seed that, that grew into what I have today and what I do today yeah. and the way I see life. What, what did you teach those kids? I mean, and you can't say all the lesson plans. It was, you know, basically it was responsibility, you know, uh, especially when I was teaching at Junction, when it was, uh, they call it intercession. It was a two-week uh, class, a full semester crammed into two weeks. And and the very first day, you know, I, uh, my TA and I laid out the battle plan. I mean, this was the way it was going to be done. You had to be on time. If you were not on time, you were three minutes late you were left so get it you know you learn up front there will be no sleeping in for two weeks this is going to be a boot camp and you will walk in the creeks you will wade in the beaver feces at independence creek if you have to you will wade up to your chin in water to get the photograph you will lay down in front of the rattlesnake i don't care if you're afraid of him or not I will keep the snake off of you, but you're going to lay down and get eye level because that is the best angle in which to shoot a rattlesnake. And I had people scared to death, shaking. But when it was over, they said, thank you for making me do that. Yeah. What are your, what are your favorite images that you've ever taken? Oh, you know, uh, I love photographing coyotes, you know, cause I love photographing deer. I've got photographs of big white tails fighting, you know, seeing, I've seen things from being out on some of these big outfits where, where other people can't go to, to most for the most part and being able to see two big bucks go together, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, not, not in a fenced area, but just be driving along a Polaris and all of a sudden crash or be rattling and see five bucks come in and all of a sudden two of them turn on each other and, you know, just go at it. You know, I mean, for the, to, I call them gladiators of the wild horse desert. Yep. Cause I mean, they're fighting to, uh, fighting to the death. 
as you saw in my home, I've got those two skulls yeah. locked together. Yeah. And uh, things like that are even a, a little simplistic photograph like in in the 80s one day I was in the, when I was living at the jailhouse there before we built the annex uh, a snowy day and I was bored and I went out in a prairie dog town and photographed this little burrowing owl uh, peering over a snowbank at me. Yeah, it's a wonderful photo. And and just a great shot. You know, it just it it reaches your it touches your soul. Just very simple images like that, you know, are very memorable shots. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be some exotic thing. Some, some people say, well, how long did you wait for, for a certain image? Well, yeah, I waited one time, uh, went out every day for like a month and a half waiting to catch a, a coyote, two coyotes fighting. That was tough. You know, and like froze my butt off is in December and stayed in an old blind built out of mesquite stumps. And I finally got the shot of two coyotes fighting. But just as significant is I came across uh, a jackrabbit one day that accepted my friendship or my, my, my presence and just laid down in the cool sand and stretched out like he and just basically went to sleep. And I was like 10 steps from him. And that was special. I'll never forget that. Or, or making friends with two roadrunners who for all summer allowed me to hunt with them every day and I could reach out and touch them. They allowed me to do that. It doesn't have to be something exotic to make it a great image. It's just the memory of the, of making that image. What, what led up to that image that I'll never forget. They will always be special. Yeah. I mean, that's got to define, that's define the creativity. I mean, there, that's right. a moment that, to be able to capture that relationship in some rare form, like that's a moment that no, you'll never be able to recreate. Right. But then you can share it with right. many people as, as decided right. to look at it or, right. or come across it. Right. Yep. got to be important. Yeah. You know? As a writer, I think of that all the time. I think that these words, you know, while they, they mean something to me now, they'll forever be wherever they end up. You know, they end up in a print magazine or whatever. Right. They'll, they'll forever be there in the form that they're in. And, Nobody could change that. Hopefully you know. someday they'll read yours like the, like like we read Jack O'Connor's today. Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> if I could be Billy O'Connor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd just do just as well. But yeah, no, there's hopes of that, right? You have sure. hopes that your ideas and sure. your creativity somehow create an it, impact on on the world. Right. And I and I enjoy writing. I enjoy writing. I I don't write I'm not a big time writer like like Henry Chapel, oh, yeah. a guy who I've collaborated with, who's just a spiritual writer, writes from the soul. Uh, but I spent a lot of time and and work in uh, in association on several books with John Graves, hmm. who's one of the great writers, the late John Graves, fabulous writer, published uh, uh, Goodbye to a River in 1960, and he influenced me greatly. His writing style. And, uh, and I, if I feel like writing, I love to write. Yeah. I will not write on anything that I don't know something about. I could, I could never be could a news do. writer. Yeah. Yeah. But if I feel like, like for instance, I wrote a post the other day about the history of the jail there that I, that I purchased in 1982 that was built in 1887. And I went through the history and the, of the times of living there and the experience and it was a long post and, 
and I'm very proud of that post. I spent time and and it and it's a good example of my writing style. And hopefully one of these days I'll be able to publish that in some little booklet of my writings, you know, just columns that I've written and in, in posts. Yeah, I mean, I always thought about. I think about writing in two ways, and then the first, the first way is I think it's like hard. It's mm-hmm. a painful process. It is, me. and I'm sure photo- photography is that way for you. I mean, when I write a, a long form story, it is the worst. Like the actual process of mentally, like, okay, now I got to do this. Now I got to do this. Yes. Now I do this, and going over every line and and reworking and it, it, it is. Yeah. People say, you know, do you enjoy? when you were a writer full-time, do you enjoy that process? I'm like, not while I'm doing it, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, it is, it's it's a lot, a lot of heart, heartache. Is. Staying up all night, thinking about, is this the right way yeah. to phrase this? Is this the right way to get my ideas across? Is, is this, this the right ending? Is this yeah. the right beginning? Yeah. Did I, did I, I carry on through with it? Just like you, is that you get passionate about the subject or whatever you're writing right. about, you know a lot about it and it's important to you and you think like, and normally you're limited to a certain amount of words. Right. And you're just trying to you know, release all the energy you have into this short or, you know, depending on how long it is into this mode of copy. Right. And it's just, I'm always, I just, the stress, whenever I turn something in is the most, it's like the release of all. Yeah. The stress relief. Just have a beer like I did it. Yeah. It might suck. It might be really good. Yeah. But at least it's gone. You know, when I was teaching, I, I told the students, of course, I taught in mass communication and I had a lot of uh, ag comm students as well. And it was a senior level and graduate level photographers. I mean, in photography was my class. It was editorial photography, basically. But I, I, I taught. So I, I, my, my approach was okay. You people are advanced students, and you're in communication. Remember, you're in a photography class. Building a good photo is like building a good paragraph. You have to have a beginning and a good ending. It's like writing a story. You have these elements that must be there in order to carry the viewer all the way through to the end. I said, think of a photograph as writing an article or a good yeah. paragraph. Yeah, It's got to start well. It's got to end well. You've got to have interest points in between. And that was my approach. Yeah. Well, sometimes I'm sure it's like this with photography for for writing for me. Sometimes it's like I know where I want to get to, but I don't necessarily know all the steps to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, right. like you were saying, I, I want to get a shot of two bucks fighting. Mm-hmm. I, if I knew how to get there, I just walk over there and do it. Right. But I know I want to get there, and I got to take all these steps right. to get there. So the the copy becomes this like, you know, learning process that people get yes. to read through. They get to read through your yeah. learning process, and I'm sure with photography, you know. People don't see all the work, mm-hmm. but they see the end product. Mm-hmm. You had to take every step to get to that end, end goal. Right, right. You know, it's not, right. it's not easy. There's struggle in there that's not right. evident. There's a you know a lot of some people recognize. They say, "Man, we knew what you. you we understand that you probably went through a lot of trouble to get these." And other people, well, that's just a great picture, but they can't. And I appreciate them appreciating it. Yeah. But well, some people but then, can see the painting. Some people can see the right. strokes. It and it's like, like someone I learned real, very early in, in editorial work, the editor doesn't give a damn how much trouble it took to get the image. Just get the image. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry about telling him or her, you know, how hard it was to get. Just make sure it's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were talking about your, 
the creativity it takes to do that and, and uh, you know, it takes pressure to make a diamond, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, the struggle mm-hmm. for you is real. But then you started to very quickly uh, find success. Well, not mm-hmm. very quickly, but you, you started to find success. And and eventually you were, you know, you, you squ- marry that up to today and you're mm-hmm. putting out books, films. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're doing speaking engagements. You're doing you know, photography classes. I mean, you're pretty much immersed in this life that that is is defined by success mm-hmm. many successes many varying successes at different levels right um how's that feel just as a just remove everything else just as a photographer just as a creativity just as a creative person yeah you you know you feel it's a it's a positive thing you know you feel like that you've achieved uh i know that in the early years you know there was this yearning what is the sign of when will I know uh, that success has arrived? Yeah, uh, it's like I told my students, uh, not, not, not necessarily monetary in monetary ways. There are other other, ty- other aspects, other elements that define success, and one of them is you know, or some of them are people calling you. You know, would you please come and share your knowledge with us? And, uh, or share your imagery or we want to use your imagery. And of course, obviously, you know, you want to get paid for it, but, but still that people want to hear your word. They want to hear your, your message. They want to know the experiences that you, that you had to endure to get to where you are today. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I'll admit, you know, it's not like being a movie star or anything, but you know, I've gone to Cabela's and places and people will come up and say, you know, you know, I'm a fan of yours, blah, 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 blah. You know, would you, you know, uh, sign your autograph, you know, and I, and I appreciate that. I'm humbled by it. But when I leave, I feel good because I know that I really did arrive. Yeah. And, and again, it's not something that I, that I set as a goal. It was just, it's just an ancillary thing of success of a lot of hard work. Yeah. And, and I do appreciate it. And I tell people, thank you so much because I appreciate people saying what you just did to me. Yeah. It makes yeah. me feel like, like what I've done is worthwhile. Worthwhile. Yeah. And it is impactful. Not, not the same. But beyond the, you know, even beyond the photography, you'd have to admit to some level. Because I remember when I first came up here and I was describing, I said, man, I met this guy, like this exceptional fella yeah. there in Benjamin. Yeah. The coyote killing some bee, but yeah. exceptional. So you have to admit to some level of exceptionalism outside of of your professional life and your career. Yeah. Just when it comes to building your own calls, having uh, right. a book of all your coyote kills, the histories that are, are uh, in the jail, have, remodeling that 1800s jailhouse and, and right. having it be featured on what HTTV right. building the dugout with your brother, Rick. Right. So you, I, I want to get you to admit to some level of like just exceptionalism outside of just, Hey, I wake up in the morning and I'm going to do this or that. I mean, there just is a something in you. Yes. There's I mean. a drive. There's a fire. There's a fire that I have to excel. I can't, I'm not the kind of person. And then I know a lot of my friends are this way. And my boys are this way. You get up in the morning and you want to achieve something. I don't care if it's building a coyote call. I don't care if it's mowing the lawn exactly right or building a wooden box. You know, I want to know by the end of the day, I have achieved something that I can be, that I can take pride in and, and something that is lasting 
that I can turn around and view and go, I did that. And that's just the way I'm built. It's, it's genetically coded in me. My father was that way. He worked too much. He was a workaholic. He was just an old cowboy. Work, you know, born in 18, uh, 1918, worked through the Depression, was hungry, and he knew he had to work. And I was told by the old timers that he was a hell of a horseman. He rode uh, the rough string at some of these ranches, rode their bad horses. He was just cut like that. And, uh, and that's just, that's just the way that some of us are. And, uh, and like yesterday, yesterday I, I, I had the grandkids there, but I wanted to take a break and go out to my shop and I built a coyote call and I felt great. <laughs> I felt wonderful. I went back to the house and I went, I have achieved something today. I built a coyote call that is so good that I'm putting it in my personal collection. Yeah. That's, you know, that's yesterday. That was yesterday. Yeah. When I, when I came up here the first time you had, I remember you had, you, we were over there at the spike box ranch and you right. came out and you had your book of all the coyote kills. And we mm-hmm. looked at that and I thought I've never seen, I mean, these are, you know, how many no- notebooks are there now? One, two, three, four, five, around five or six, seven, something like that. And to describe what this looks like, this is a stack of old to new Right. Like some of them are held notebooks. together with gray yeah. tape. The old, yeah. the old, uh, dusty, dirty duct tape. Yeah. Dirty, bloody. And it's essentially a row, row of columns. And you, you wrote, you can tell me but where. Yeah. I put the date, the location, the, uh, rifle, uh, the distance, if it was running or walking, the age, the weight, the gender, the weather conditions. If I called him up, the direction he approached in, mm. the direction of the wind, mm. and then comments. Uh, was he was he in good condition? Uh, you know, was there something wrong with him? That yeah. type of thing. And so you can flip through, and I remember first time you, you did very flip through and be like, oh, there we go, 69, me and old Bob Waters. <laughs> right. <laughs> Making that up, of course. Right. But, uh, winds out of the north. 8.30 exactly. a.m., this coyote approached up this little arroyo, and he yes. shot him at 20 yards. And, I, and I've since, I've taken my, my notes to a statistician, and he has gone through, bless his heart. Wow, that was, a, that was a job amassing all this. I had to go through all my notes and put them in order and then gave them to the statistician, uh, Neil Wilkins. And he came up with all this data. Uh, wind direction, average wind velocity, average weight. Uh, does male do male uh, coyotes answer a call more prevalent than a female? Blah blah blah. And then I went in and then sliced this into time frames and figured out, uh, you know, the percentage of coyotes that would come upwind, downwind, crosswind, uh, the average distance they were. Um, you know, the, the average male and the female, what, what the, what the ratio was and broke that down. And I keep that. And now I do that each year. And I just finished, uh, this last, my last season, just, just a few days ago. And I'm going, this could get old real quick. (laughs) (laughs) The hell have I been doing all these years? I know. My God, you know, get the, get the calculator and sit there pecking in numbers and go, I thought through this 1974 when I got out of tech, you know, (laughs) And statistics. I love, I love it. But yeah, it, it just it draws me back to this. When you see it, you know, folks would ever see that book. Um, it's just this exceptional display of of 
I'm not even sure other than just say like there's there's an exceptionalism to the consistency with which over the years that you did that. That statistician, um, Neil Wilkins, told me, he said, this is very interesting because I doubt there are there are there is any data like this anywhere anywhere in the world. How could there be? He How said, could there this is one be? of a kind. Yeah, there and, couldn't the, the the range of the coyote where it's lived for that many years because they've been yep. certainly been spread around in the recent years, but they weren't always spread around this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of years where the the coyote lived and the amount of times that you recorded the coyote. Right. It's crazy. Couldn't be. And I start when I started it, the the first note that I ever took was October the seventeenth, nineteen sixty five, when I shot my first one. And all it was was a card, a little fold out card that you would put in a file, and it had Wyman Menzer killed a coyote. <laughs> Two fifteen PM, October seventeenth, nineteen sixty five, with a thirty thirty Marlin, with a two and a half power scope, with a hundred and fifty grain bullet. Shot running at 247 yards. Who was with me? My friend Kermit Woolley. That was the first note I ever wrote on on hunting. Something. And and then and then after that, I would just put one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then I'd put a mark through it. And then when I got to a hundred, I went. I'm gonna start keeping more detailed notes. And then I started keeping a little bit more detail, and then way more detail, and then got deeper into it. Yeah. And so now I've got a, and then there were years that I would kind of vary. I'd go, I'm too busy to put that many notes down, but I would something. document. I something. would document, Yeah. but uh, I might not put the weather conditions or something like that, but now it's absolute in the last, you know, eight or 10 years. It's absolute. I don't miss any notes. I even put a blood. If I kill the coyote, if I'm, if I'm not photographing, I'll actually put a blood print i put my fingerprint and i put a blood spot and and i actually had dinner with uh with one of the greatest cat men in america while a researcher mike tuis who knows more about uh ocelot than any man in the world and i told him about my notes and he said one of these days i would like to look at your bobcat notes and your blood prints because i we might be able to take dna samples from those blood prints and find out something about the bobcats in your part of the country versus bobcats elsewhere. And that's one of the reasons I did that blood print because I got to thinking, what if the old wolf trappers in the 19th century who exterminated the Texas buffalo wolf, I mean, literally exterminated that wolf. I don't remember the subspecies was Canis lupus. One of them was monstrobolus. And then there was another one. There's like three different wolves in Texas, uh, gray wolves. But they exterminated wolf. What if each one of those guys would have kept a blood print where they could take the DNA and compare it with the wolves in Montana, Wyoming, Minnesota, Alaska, Ontario, British Columbia? What if? And so I said, you know, I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. So, And I won't realize it. But someday somebody might realize something from this that's positive. Yeah, and they will. It's a, it's a, no doubt about it in my mind. And and it's to to see you walk out with a big stack of things. You're like that's a life right there. That's, that is it's a damn life. It you know, is. It a is huge part of it. So the, the next exceptional thing that you've done. It's not in order uh, at all. But you bought a jail. Yes. And then you remodeled said jail. Lived in that 
jailhouse. We're talking an old 1800s mm-hmm. stone jailhouse. Right. So why'd you do that? Because my ex-wife wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole other chapter of the book, right? And I did. I mean, all I could see was a tremendous amount of work. And But we hired a couple of guys who were really good freelance guys. They weren't your, you know, your follow. You have to follow a line, you know, this ABCDFG. And these were the guys who would look at a blueprint and go, yeah, I think we can do this. Or they'd look at a, say, yeah, let's do this. It may not be the the exact way it should be done, but this is probably the way that it would be stronger. And they, they lived here. One of them is deceased now, but one of them still lives here. And it works for the Army Corps of Engineer, Tracy Cartwright. And so together we put that, we worked years on it. And, uh, and I, it's, it's, it's a work of, I'm very proud of, of the place. We don't live in it now. It's more or less a museum, but it represents another era. And, and my appreciation of history, I can go in there and I can pick up that old jail book and I can look at the name October, 1887, W.E. Willis horse theft, the first guy ever thrown in there. Then you look down and a week later, W.E. Willis, <laughs> you know, W.E. was a he's popular a, dude here. He's a frequent And guest. then I put this on Facebook, this page, and here this guy writes, he said, W.E. Willis was my great, great, like grandfather. And he was, he and Mr. Drummond, I think it was, that's just down the line from him was thrown in the state penitentiary and escaped and W.E. was never heard from again. We don't know where he went, but this other fellow turned up and lived a good life after that. But he said, we don't know where W.E. went. He just disappeared. It's amazing. You know, all this stuff just pops up. It's amazing. Yeah. If you got your eye on history, it's always going to connect to something. Yeah. It's just, it's just all. And you know, and I bought that jail in 1982 and, so it was 100, this, around 100 years old. 108, basically 100 years old. And then it was like yesterday I get this email from this guy that tells me about W. Willis. Unbelievable. And I've been looking at his name since 1982. And you guys worked on that jail for how long? Oh, before? geez. It took two and a half years. Was it crumbling when you bought it? It was in horrible condition. The windows were all broken out. Uh, uh, raining in the windows. The The rock was disintegrating. It was just terrible. And so it just took, you know, we bought the thing for $6,000. It took, th- I looked at the old, uh, uh, the old notes, the old entry in the courthouse, uh, in the county notes, and it cost $6,000 to build it. I paid $6,000 for it in 1982 and uh, put about 60000 in it to refurbish it. And, uh, and it's, it's quite a deal. HGTV has been there three times. Yeah. And that's uh, beautiful. And it's inside of it. like, you know, when you know, Yeti came and they, they did all their interviews yeah. in the jail. And then last, uh, a year ago, this past June, best made, uh, uh, out of New York city came and shot the catalog. Some of it in the jail. It's just a really neat place. And, and when people come in, I, you know, sometimes someone will stop and say, man, that's a neat place. I said, how would you like to go for a walkthrough? Would you really take me through that? I said, sure. I got some time. One day I stopped and there's three guys standing in the ditch. I said, can I help you? And they said, no, not really. I said, well, I own that place right there. I said, would you like a, a visit? And there were three Texas Rangers. No kidding. He said, oh, you take us through there? I said, sure. I said, well, give me a minute. And I parked, took them through there. And I mean, they were so happy, so thankful. 
And of course, one of the guys that used to live in there in the twenties was a Texas Ranger when he died, Homer T. Melton. He's an old buddy of mine. And he'd tell me stories of when he was a kid leaving the jail in the 1920s during the prohibition years and all the people his daddy threw in jail, <laughs> including the sister of Ernest Tubb, the country singer Ernest Tubb. Ernest Tubb. Yeah. Yeah. J- Jules Snelson. And that, I mean, I, when you walk through that place, you've kept it, you've updated it to this beautiful, I mean, it could be a bed and breakfast. But you'd, oh, yeah, it could. There. It could. Um, but it still has the, the original bars on some mm-hmm. a lot of the windows still has right. all the a lot all of the, the bars original. are still there and so it just has this it's much like i think it's kind of like the way you lived your life it's like this a beautiful representation of who you are your creativity but it's 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 has respect for what it is respect for the history of that building right. and what it means right and so it's it's another i say like another example the other example is you and your brother rick mm-hmm. build a dugout right the antler creek dugout <laughs> antler creek dugout <laughs> Probably took a few years off your life well, doing so. That came from that came from our appreciation for the life our mother led when she had to live in a dugout when she was a young, young child during the depression. And, and a dugout is essentially just a hole. That's dug a hole a dug in the back of the bank with a with a roof put on top of it, and the roof covered in dirt, with a stovepipe sticking out of the top. And we worked from February of I think 2015. And we finished that thing in like about November of 2015. And we'd work on it, you know, on weekends. And then, but the main thing is like we consistently and we, we had a plan. Let's do ABCDFG. We, I actually saw a dugout in the 60s when I was cowboying on the ranch. And it was a one man dugout. And I remember the construction of it. I remember getting on my hands and knees and looking inside and seeing how they had the ridge pole and, and the support poles. And so that's the way we built it. Yeah. And, um, and it's built to stay. It'll be here for a long, long time. We built it to last. It wasn't something that might crumble in five years. No. You you can tell when you walk up to that place and you guys cut how many trees, Doug, for how many oh, days? I mean, you just. Oh. There were days when we would go cut, we would go cut red cedars. We traded, we traded a bunch of, we traded a case of beer for a bunch of red cedar trees. <laughs> and we would go out and I remember. What kind of beer? Day, wait, what kind of beer was it? Uh, it's, uh, we told the guy, just buy some, we'd, we'd pay for it. It might've been, uh, might've been some, uh, some Coors Light. I don't there know. You go. Preferably it was Dos Equis, but anyway, <laughs> or, or, yeah, but, uh. Anyway, um, I remember one day it was dove season and we had a hundred and like 102 degree day. Wind was blowing. God, it was hot. We were out there cutting those things. They weighed like 150 pounds each at 30, you know, 25 feet long was carrying them out. If we took the cut the limbs off of them, load them in a trailer and here come the game warden driving up he'd been watching us and he thought we were dove hunting and he's a, he's a good guy. Great guy. He said, oh, well, I thought y'all were hunters, and I was come to check your license. I said, no, we're just cutting these trees, working on our dugout. I said, I said, man, if you're going to give us a ticket, give us a ticket. Uh, if, you, if you're not going to get out and help us or give us a ticket, just move on, man. <laughs> he said, I believe I'm going to leave. <laughs> There's men at work here. There's men at bit. work. But we cut, oh, my geez, I don't know how we survived through that. Because I remember one day shoveling dirt onto that roof for six hours yeah 
six hours. And I didn't know at the time I had like 90% blockage. Yeah, we were talking about that. You the were- next year, uh, in, in uh, November of two, uh, December of 2016, I had to have a stent in my left uh, left artery. Well, talk about wanting to achieve something. I mean, there is zero reason for you guys to build that, like zero uh, practical reason for you guys to build a dugout. Right. It was just it was just an appreciation for an old way yeah. of life. Yeah. And like I said, we'll be there for. Right. We can go there, take our kids. We can go there and take friends. We can celebrate. We can open a bottle of wine on a fall evening or, a, and, or spend the night, get up on the deck and sit up there and, and listen to the wild turkey and listen to the birds call and say, that's the sound of winter. That's the sound of spring. That's the sound of fall. That's the first geese I've heard come in. Those are the sandhill cranes. That's the beginning of autumn. And just, and just talk about that. And that takes us back to when we were young and when we lived a quarter of a mile away where we were raised, when we used to walk down to that same spot and hunt like, 50 yards away with an old sawed off 12 gauge shotgun that was held together with copper wire that had bulges in the barrel where people had shot with, with something in the barrel and, and, uh, dangerous as heck, but that's the guns we used Mm -hmm. and, and, and reminisce and have a good time. Yeah. Well, that's where you are. You know, I'm sure it's your life now in that Yeti film. You said you gotta be at a, and, and arrive at that's right. So you're at Z. Um, you got grandkids. We say seven grandkids. Seven grandkids. Yeah. Wonderful wife. Great home here. Lots of lots of friends. Lots of friends. Lots of memories. Lots of artifacts right. from your life and other folks' life. So that you've appreciated. I mean, what's what's the feeling when you get up in the morning nowadays? I mean, what's that? What's again? That? It's what can I do today? What can I do today that I can achieve something? And. Um, and I, and I suppose it'll never change. I want to achieve And I don't care how, how minimal it is, how, how insignificant people are. Why, why are you building that little old call? You know, it's because I want to, Yeah. and I want it to sound just right to where I can put it down and say, I have, I have achieved something positive, something that I can use or I cannot use, but it's something that someday someone will look at with my initials and say he built this yeah this is from wyman minzer yeah and there's a lot of that there's hopefully. a lot of that hopefully i so. mean it, yeah you're a part of this land this land's a part of you i'd I like mean, to think so i think that's true definitely as part of me it it's it it shaped my whole my whole life it shaped my soul i mean it's from a child i mean i it's the light the 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 roughness of the land to the American cotted lizards that used to fascinate me to the bones of a, of a mammoth sticking out of a Creek bank, uh, finding a Buffalo skull, all those things have, have created the foundation for what I am today. What, what would you say? I think I know what you'd say, but what would you say to somebody who, cause I think there's a lot of people that listen to this particular program that maybe are 35 or 40 or 25 mm-hmm. or just, are curious about hunting just starting out mm-hmm. i've met a lot of them i've heard from a lot of them via email i've heard from a lot of them on messages from different platforms that are curious about hunting mm-hmm. getting outside they're new to it they're not children they're adults they've mm-hmm. fully formed the, a lot of their opinions on the world 
but now they're kind of going outside with this newfound motivation to discover everything that mm-hmm. they've never known. This wild places that you grew up in, that mm-hmm. you were lucky enough to have been presented to you when you were just a little one. How, what would you say to those folks that are going outside when they go outside? What should they look for? What should they, how should they think and, and process? Try to be as close to the land as possible. Don't go and sit in a blind. Don't go stare mindlessly at a feeder. Take that rifle. If you're going to hunt, take that shotgun, take the pistol, take the bow, go out and read sign and, and wonder why, why that animal was walking or heading in that direction on that particular day. Why were there so many snake tracks today and not so yesterday? Ask yourself the questions and try to find the answers and, and just be a thinker and, and don't just, don't, don't just walk out with the gun and say, I'm going to go kill something and I'm going to be happy because that's not what it's about. Be a part of the land. And learn. Yeah. Yeah. Be, be, be aware, be aware, be Proceed. a part of the land be aware and appreciate, uh, and have reverence. Yeah. How have would you reverence. describe your reverence for this place after, I mean, reverence from everything to road runners to quail. I know I, I look at each, at each creature and I know it's, it's, uh, uh, the reason for its existence. I know its job. I know its place in the ecosystem and I appreciate it. I don't kill rattlesnakes. You know, I avoid them, uh, if, unless I'm taking photographs, I mean, I've crawled down into a den of rattlesnakes and there'll be 10 or 15 rattlesnakes all around me, but I just go down there to take photographs and I get up and leave. I get my images. I've done, I've, I've created my, I've, I've enacted my creative duty for the day and they didn't bite me. And for that, I appreciate it. And so, and I invaded their place. And so I leave but I have reverence for them. Now I don't want them in my house. I'd rather they, 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 they not be in my yard, but whenever I see them any place else, I go, Hey, you belong here. I have reverence for you. And I know, and I understand your job. Yeah. Is there a way that you would, as we talked a lot about last night at dinner and this morning and throughout this visit about how the difference in the types of people, types of humans in this world, you know, we label them with different labels, but yeah. like, there's, there's, we talked about soft and hard. We talked about liberal and Republican. Mm-hmm. We talked about a lot of different types of people, but there certainly is people that enjoy wildlife, people that enjoy going outside, mm-hmm. people that don't do that. Mm-hmm. But as I said before, there's some chunk of people in the middle that just didn't have the, you know, the luck or the circumstance that you had, or even I've had in my life. Um, and they're curious, but never have never been presented that. How do you, how do you feel after all your years of doing this, that if somebody said, I have no idea about anything, mm-hmm. I've, I've rarely ever been outside. How do I approach this stuff? I think that's, that's important. well, you know, they, they, they need to, to isolate the interest point, the point of interest that they're, that they, they're seeking, read up on it and then go out and just try to experience it. If you have to go to a state park, go to a national park, go hike, but be observant, be aware and, uh, and, and just be, take notice, you know, of, of all your surroundings from the vegetation, understand that there's plants that, 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 that blossom in the fall. Why do they, 
There's, there's plants that blossom in nightfall and not during the daytime, you know, and, and recognize that study it, recognize that, that some plants are essential for the existence of some species of animals, you know, understand that, that that sticky loke bush with thorns three inches long that produces that little berry, little purple berry that has a consistency of a near rotten apple is one of the most sought after food item, items of coyotes in May and early June that's, that's on the land. And know that all those mesquite beans dangling from the, from the limbs will soon be eaten by deer, wild hogs. It, 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 uh, it uh, is an essential food item for all these animals. Uh, unfortunately, some of them spread the seed while also like the coyote, when they eat a mesquite bean, they virtually kill the viability of that seed. Hmm. And people don't know that. It's amazing how many people around here think, well, coyotes spread mesquite. No, they don't. Hell, I was involved in research and we proved otherwise. Cattle spread it. They actually scarify the seed to where it grows better and faster. (laughs) Fertilize it. But when it goes through a coyote's digestive system, it kills the seed. Now, understand small things like that and just learn. Begin at the bottom. Begin slow with easy things and work your way up. It takes time. It's taken me 67 years to get to this point. It's not an overnight thing. Yeah, I think that's with people that are either new or trying to get into this thing. That's what that's what it is. It's a discipline, very disciplined, and it takes time. It takes time. I see that a lot in in people in like, say for instance, writers, photographers. I see that a lot in young ones, very young ones, just starting out. They want to go from A to Z, not A B C D E F G. Yeah, that's not the way it works. It's very disciplined. You have to go through the stages. And uh, and otherwise, you're going to be a flash in the pan. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. I mean, today you, you have this, you have the internet. That's right. this wealth of information, but it's also this wealth of perspective where you see this guy's doing that, this guy's doing that. Mm-hmm. This guy's doing, you get lost in what everybody else might be doing and forget that you have to train yourself. Stick to, to your own path. Stick to your path. And understand that if you have a passion and you follow it, you'll get there eventually, but you're not going to get there tomorrow. Right, right. Um, and just struggle a while, but that struggle's damn good. Struggle is, struggle is worth it if you if you stay stay hooked. Yeah. Well, you've, you certainly live the outdoor life. And, and for them, for Field and Stream to call you, you're one of the 10, yeah. that's a big that deal. Was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was cool. I remember a guy, I'd forgotten all about it, and a writer, I think from Iowa or somewhere, he called and he said, I'm, I'm doing interviews with 10 guys from field and, uh, that picked my field and stream. And so I interviewed with him and, and totally forgot about it. And then a friend of mine, Al Brothers, who's an old timer, 80, 80 some odd years old in South Texas, called me when they said, have you seen field and stream? <laughs> I said, no. He said, well, you need to see it. <laughs> I said, okay, Al, I'll get me a coffee. And he said, you're in it. I said, well, what did I do? And he told me, he said, you were selected as one of the top 10 outdoor legends in America. And I went, really? And then, then I went, I re- oh, I remember the guy <laughs> interviewed me. And, and it was cool. 
That is cool. It's it's really special, and I appreciate it. And I think that was the last published issue. All the rest of it's online. I think so. There's some that it was online. The part that I read, yeah. but I that gave me a smile. I thought, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've got that's the hard right. copy. I got the last hard copy. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no way to help folks understand like your ethos. I think hopefully this conversation has, but your ethos and your way of life and how that's led you to where you are, but is there one philosophy or ideology that you've had? I mean, we've talked about the hard work and the work mm-hmm. ethic. Is there some parallel philosophy that we can end with that'll, that'll really, that'll really wrap it up? A lot of pressure now. I know. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's basically, basically it's, uh, having willingness to work hard and have that passion. You've got to have the passion. I remember an old photographer one time that I met from Medicine Lodge, Kansas. And I was just in the early years. And and we were out together on a ranch shooting photographs. It's early in the morning. And the cowboys are saddling up before the sun came up. And I was up on a hill ready to start shooting. And he told me later, I said, well, I don't know. You know, this is hard, hard business. And he said, you'll do well. You've got a fire in your gut. I'll never forget that. Fire in your gut. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I thank you because, you know, I'm getting ready to move out of Texas and, and go on another little adventure here with my family. But um, it's it's been good to visit with you the times I've been able it's, to do it here. It's been an honor for me. That's been you've, an honor you've for been, me. You've been special for me and – and I'm glad our paths crossed some time ago with with, yeah. with the Winchester coyote hunt. Well, and I'll always be able to say that I think we sat 15, maybe 15 coyote stands in our time together. And I think we, you called it 16 coyotes. Now, I didn't always do my job. <laughs> well, I didn't always do we, my job with a rifle. We all miss. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> my notes don't tell about the misses. <laughs> <laughs> There's no book of misses? No. Uh, Come on. Uh, well, well, I could have a book of misses that uh, <laughs> long. But, yeah, it, it's, I you know I always think of through my lifetime there there's people you meet and there's impacts that people have on you and just the person that you are it means a lot to me and lots a well, lot of people you. and it's thank and uh, I I hope I hope that that uh, I hope that my story inspires because I as the older I get uh, the more I realize that it, it is important to share a story that will give people inspiration because. Too many individuals I've met over the years have a story of sadness, especially in the end years, yeah. and they wish they would have. And many times after one of my presentations, I've heard people say, "I wish I would have." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's if you fill your fill your cup up with love and passion and hard work, man. Try treat other people good, be fair with other people. That that also is very important. You know, the, and, and, and it, it will, it will be reciprocated. Yeah. And if you want to really kill coyotes, then just give Wyman a call and get one of those open, <laughs> one of them hand carved open reeds. Yeah. We're, we're starting a new deal. I'm going to, I'm going to actually send a photograph with each, with each purchase, a photograph of, uh, of one of my months at batch camp in the seventies, black and white, oh, kind of a tin type version of me standing there with the furs and also a note, uh, uh, out of my keel notes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Copy. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, go. Yeah. Is it Wyman Is that where you go? Wyman I'd go there if I was somebody. 
I, if you're I listening to this, do. you ought to go there. I, I hope they hope you'll come and visit. All right. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Wyman. You bet. That's it. That's all. Episode number 24 is in the books. Thank you to Wyman Menzer. Thank you to Texas. Thank you to the folks of Benjamin, Texas, for having me, feed me your wonderful foods, and let me uh, meet your native son once again, Wyman Menzer. Uh, Wyman and his wife, Celinda, are, I would consider, friends of mine, good friends of mine. Uh, Wyman is, for lack of a better term, a mentor to me, someone who has taught me a lot through just the way he's lived his life, taught me a lot uh, through our own interactions. So if you ever make it to Benjamin, Texas, stop by. I'm sure Wyman will be happy to give you a tour of the jailhouse. I'm happy to show you his work and talk about his life, which is extraordinary. Until next time, we'll continue our tour through Texas. We're going to talk to a man named Russell Cunningham. Russell Cunningham being a amateur archaeologist that lives in near my home in Tripping Springs, Texas. And he has quite the collection of artifacts to share with us. So stick with us. In the meantime, thehuntingcollective.com, podcasts, articles, videos there. Uh, you'll find a lot of stuff. Hopefully you'll enjoy. Stick with us. We're going to keep this conversation rolling. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.